Hello, this is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom. You're listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Anthony Arthur Long. He is the Chancellor's Professor Emeritus of Classics and Irving Stone Professor of Literature Emeritus, as well as the Affiliated Professor of Philosophy and Rhetoric at the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Long is often credited with spearheading the revived interest in Stoicism, as well as other ancient philosophies, and has written several books on the topic, including How to Be Free, An Ancient Guide to the Stoic Life. He has kindly agreed to speak to us today on the topic of his recent essay, Natural Catastrophe in Greek and Roman Philosophy, and what ancient philosophies can teach us in the here and now. But before we begin, a quick thank you to our Classical Wisdom Society members who make this podcast possible. If you would like to become a society member and help support the classics, please go to classicalwisdom.com and click start here. You can also listen to Professor Long speak live at Classical Wisdom's online inaugural symposium taking place October 24th to 25th. Please go to classicalwisdom.com for more details. Now, on to natural catastrophes and ancient wisdom for modern problems. You've actually been working on a book uh, called Natural Catastrophe in Greek and Roman Philosophy. So thinking, going back to the ancient world, how did the ancients respond to natural catastrophes? How did they deal with, with their own pandemics? Good. I mean, I, when I started this work, I wasn't thinking so much of uh, plagues and, uh, and viruses, but more things like earthquakes and uh, tsunamis. Uh, so what the work I've done so far doesn't particularly address um, viruses and plagues. Uh, but, you know, I think a lot of the conditions are, are, are similar in the sense that we're suddenly being faced with something we can't control. Um, so your question really, you know, just to answer it as briefly as possible, I think one wants to distinguish between the earliest ancient uh, responses to disasters you can go right back to the Iliad. I mean, the Iliad's our earliest Greek literature, and it actually starts with a plague. Now, the plague there has been caused by um, the fact that one of the great characters of the Iliad, Agamemnon, has misbehaved according to one of the uh, gods, and so the god is punishing everybody else with a, with a plague. But it's interesting that the, this great epic begins with a plague. Um, perhaps Greek tragedies, great, greatest Greek tragedy, um, Sophocles, uh, Oedipus, King Oedipus, begins with a plague. So these are examples, and you could take uh, not just plague, you could take earthquakes. These are, are the ancient people, not just ancient Greeks, uh, but people, I think, always. You know, if, if you were a polytheistic society, you, you attributed such disasters outside human control to, to divine powers. Uh, divine powers uh, are very powerful, and... Um, we have to keep our heads down. And so I think one way of trying to cope in the ancient world before philosophy and science sort of became more important were, you know, telling stories, telling great mythological stories about, you know, gods and heroes. So you could have a heroic um, survival like Ulysses. But of course, Ulysses, the Odyssey is also full of misbehavior. I mean, Odysseus's men are very greedy. And, uh, and so they come to grief through their own, own, own misbehaviour. 
So you know, you already have there the, the, the distinctions between natural disasters, a, a God's anger, but human disasters, which are brought about by our own um, uh, failings, as as, that's, as the stories tell us. So that's you know, you, so mythology is a very important, I think, way of trying to cope there. And I think you know, when we're thinking about modern ways of coping, we might want to think about the kind of stories we tell. I mean, our media, you know, we we, we love sex and violence on TV. But we don't have so many stories, I think, about perhaps, you know, well, how, how did we come to be the species we are? Um, you know, where, you know, so, so the kind of things that, um, I mean, I think Freud put it so very well in, even before the Second World War, in civilization and its discontents. There are two sides to the to human beings. One of great, you know, achievement and what we used to call a conquest of nature. And now it's all, all suddenly coming back upon us. And, um, you know, I've tended to wonder whether pandemics and ecology don't come together in some way. I mean, part of my own background with, with, with the book is I'm a passionate green person. And so I think that, you know, when we talk in, in the present context of, ecolo- of the pandemic about going back to normal, I say, I really hope not. You know, I mean, more, normal was not good, so good. Normal was going very bad, in fact. So <laughs> we need to change our behavior in that way. Yeah, we were sort of already kind of going in a, a very unsustainable direction. And you wonder about these, these disturbances, maybe they're very helpful in a way that to make us reevaluate and, and readdress our, our situations. I do think, I do think that, exactly. So, uh, you know, one of your first questions when you were, we were corresponding about this was, you know, the, how, did, how did the ancients cope? I think the, the big intellectual shift, which came with the, the beginnings of what we call Greek philosophy and, and, and science. And of course, when I'm saying this, is, it's, you know, we're, we're talking about a very small number of people who are being influenced by these things or doing the influencing themselves. But, I mean, it is a colossal, I think, shift to suddenly start thinking, well, maybe something like an earthquake isn't a, caused by a god's anger. Perhaps there are, there are actual things that we can call, you know, forces like fire and, 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 and wind, you know, which are actually causing these things. It's not personal at all. And if we only studied things in a certain way, we, we could actually perhaps begin to understand them. And certainly a notion of understanding as a way of coping, if we can find causes of things, then things become less less scary. It doesn't mean they go away. And ancient science, of course, was not technologically based. It wasn't intended to control nature. But in a certain way, I do think if you have an understanding of why something happened, it, you are, in a sense, helping to control it, whether it's a plague or, or something else. I mean, just staying with away from, from pandemics for the moment. I mean, just to give a very interesting example, there was a terrible catastrophe uh, that occurred, which is probably the, the origin of the Atlantis story in a, a, a Greek colony called Helike uh, on the Gulf of Corinth. Uh, and not, well, it was a colony, it was a city-state, completely wiped out in one day by an appalling earthquake and, and tsunami. And the people of Helike were uh, their patron god was Poseidon. So, of course, Poseidon must have been terribly angry because he's, he's destroying the city of it, well, which he's the patron god. And so that, that, that goes down, I think, probably in antiquity as the greatest natural disaster. It's told by all 
everybody right up into the Christian period. And right up into that period, people are, are saying we must have been, we must have got, you know, Poseidon really mad with us. But at the same time, people are explaining it in entirely naturalistic terms. So you've got competing, competing explanations of things. And I mean, that's always going to be so, I think. But, uh, but the, the, the idea that we might somehow, through human exploration and understanding, be able to find a way of dealing with things, at least emotionally in terms of understanding, is, is I think, that perhaps the greatest contribution ancient philosophy can, can have for us today. You know, it, it's interesting, you, you were mentioning earthquakes, and um, I've lived in a few different places where we've had a lot of earthquakes. Um, yeah. and I lived in, in Taipei for a while, and also in Mexico City. And, um, you know, it's really interesting because in both places I experienced a lot of earthquakes. Um, but they're very different cultures and very different responses, but also different technology and you know in in taiwan you had taipei 101 which is this enormous building that's sitting right on top of you know a constant earthquake zone as this sort of this huge bold human defiance against nature um and the, and the technology that is employed there is you know phenomenal i mean it's it's really amazing but yeah. You know, in Mexico City, I was there during the very deadly September um, 19th earthquake and hundreds of people died. Um, and, you know, there the fear of it was much more palpable because you didn't, you didn't have the technology. Do you think then that this, because we have technology that we think that we can handle these natural disasters, that we can live in these places and that we won't learn from? Well, that? look, I mean, we obviously are you know, in terms of healthcare and technology, we are obviously at a huge advantage over ancient people in, in, in extraordinary ways. I mean, uh, who would want to, you know, ancient Rome might seem a glorious city when you read about it, but it was a stinking and, you know, uh, <laughs> flea-ridden and virus-infected city. And so we don't want to be back there. But I do, yes, I do think though that uh, our, our modern, um, you know, expertise in, in these ways and achievements the negative side is that we have higher expectations than are realistic. Um, and I mean, I, I think what's going back to the ecology thing, I think above all, you know, what we are re realizing and should be realizing is that we are using up resources at a, a terrible rate. So I think that longer term, I'm more worried about the, the, the climate change than I am about the pandemic. The pandemic will is devastating and awful, but it will, it will stop. But the other thing won't stop unless we we do something about it. Yes, uh, and that that could have even long larger consequences. You know. Right. Exactly. To to go back to the ancients, then um, I mean, we have this modern technology and all this. What can ancient philosophy do to help us during this? I mean, what what sort of specifics of ancient knowledge would be useful to us now? Well, um, I think. It, uh, there, I think we're talking there, you know, thinking more about the philosophers, and it doesn't have to be simply the Stoic philosophers. I think other philosophies that developed at the same time as Stoicism, I mean, the Epicurean philosophy, the, the Cynics, I think what all of these philosophies had in common was not that they developed uh, in order to help people to cope with a particular disaster. There was a theory when I started my work 
that Athens' great days were over and somehow, and somehow autocracies were coming in and getting rid of democracy and that, uh, and that people couldn't cope, so they needed new philosophies. Well, I think that's, there's, there's very little truth, I think, in that. These philosophies developed at times that were pretty good times for, for the people living there. So I think what, what the, and, and they, weren't, they weren't designed, I think, as strategies for coping. They were designed, I think, for, well, in, you know, intellectual enjoyment on, it, in, on its own, but also to enrich experience, to re, for people to realize that there's, well, there was a lot more to life than, you know, sort of wine, women and song, that there were, we have human resources that we can draw on and, and no, which, which will be very helpful in, in, in bad times, but are also uh, available for, for good times. I think that so it's very important. I think something perhaps modern Stoics have lost, um, and it's perhaps built into the modern notion of Stoicism as a philosophy of, of sort of resignation, of re, perhaps even of, of repression of emotion. And that, that's really just not there in the ancient sources. Stoicism and these other philosophies are designed for all times, good times as well as bad times. So you're asking about, well, what, 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 what strategies can, can they give us? And I think that, well, in both the Greek, before, before the philosophers really got underway, the, the Greeks had a, a notion that's very hard to translate. A uh, Greek word for it is sophrosune. It literally means um, uh, safe thinking. Uh, it's so thrown means so uh, sort of moderate and, 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 and so it's kind of a way of, often translated as moderation or, um, or, tra or uh, self-control but those are rather slightly misleading it, it, it's, it's really a sort of way of trying to put yourself in relation to the world in a way that you can the, the world won't master you and you won't sort of over try to master the world it's it's a kind of balance. It's balance. It's we call it balance. So I think I think if we it sounds kind of perhaps not very sexy but the notion of a of, of a balanced life. But it, that this is I think an ideal which is very much there. And um, when when the Stoics defined their good life, they just said it it's living in accordance with experience of natural events. And this brings me to one of your other very good questions. I think where you asked me whether whether one could really be a Stoic if you didn't have to have, have had to face some, you know, difficult, difficult situation. Uh, and I think the Stoic answer would probably be, uh, it, it, would, it would be hard. It's, it's hard to be a Stoic. In fact, nobody, I think you put it in one of your questions to me, you said, can, you, uh, can one achieve a full understanding of Stoicism without enduring a great difficulty? Uh, it, does that make catastrophe in a way necessary. And I'd like to try to respond by saying, I don't think the Stoics thought that anybody can ever achieve a full understanding of Stoicism. Stoicism is always going to be an unfinished project. The most you can hope to do is to make some kind of progress through, I mean, not, not technological progress, not material progress, but emotional, mental progress. The most you can try to achieve is, is some kind of progress through really um, trying to understand the world that you're living in. That's the, the notion of, of experience. Um, the, the German philosopher Schopenhauer quoted uh, the Stoics here, 
by saying that what Stoicism is, is trying to achieve and what Chrysippus meant by this is not, you know, not trying to go beyond expect, not what's possible, that human beings exceed their, uh, their situation. Now, uh, I mean, this is why I think that Stoicism is, is, is difficult because we must, as a species, I think, be, be hardwired to be, you know, to be optimistic. I mean, we, you know, obviously human beings have had to struggle to, to, to survive as a species. And, and so that we're always having to, you know, make, make adjustments and so forth. And I think Stoicism allows for that, but it's, but, but it's also trying to tell us always how to be, how to be prepared for um, whatever's going to, you know, you, you cannot, you can't predict. You can't predict exactly what's going to happen, and so it's a matter of trying to make people ready for anything. I think and that, that that it's this kind of readiness uh, of of being able to adjust one's oneself, not not giving up on all the ordinary things that one likes about family and and and, and, and comfort, but but just realizing that these things are all are never just things you can take for granted. Yeah, I like that, um, you know, many of the Stoics would suggest sleeping on the floor from time to time or to, yeah. to endure hardship so that you know that you can handle it as well and that you, you will survive it and that takes away a bit of the fear of it. And it, yeah. and it, it makes me think like, again, in, in Mexico, for instance, most people had a bag at the front of their door with their most valuable possessions because they were used to running printing out of the house when the alarm started and having 60 seconds to make it out. And that kind of regular reminder um, puts your life in perspective. If you're facing that, that fear of death on a somewhat regular basis, I mean, it changes your mindset, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So another question, of course, you asked me, which I think this is relevant to is, uh, I mean, you asked me about, I'm just trying to find the way you put it, was what, what, why do you think there's been a, a revival? Of, of, of stoicism lately and i mean there certainly has been an enormous um interest in a kind of well you know not, not, not to be kind of uh, snooty but i mean what one might call pop stoicism you know stoicism for, for, you know there's this wonderful little book here called stoicism today uh it's you know stoicism for working mums Stoicism for the woman in the checkout counter. Stoicism for doctors. <laughs> okay, oh, that's great. Um, but I think all of this kind of stoicism, which fits into a sort of you know a, a, a certain you know interest today, you know, everybody has has to have their therapist, and, and so stoicism, stoicism as a kind of kind of self help play thing. Uh, and it, I mean, I, I think it's great. I mean, when I started my work, nobody nobody. Nobody talked that way. Stoicism was a was a minor intellect academic pursuit, and it, it then something sort of turned around. And I think I don't think we we quite know why. That must have something to do with the zeitgeist, you know. In some some things, you know, I, and, you know, there are all kinds of explanations of why things happen, which you know may not be the way they you know. Certainly, somebody read a book and somebody else talked to somebody else, and, and so it happened. <clears throat> anyway, take it. But I think what if there's something missing in this sort of modern stoicism, I think it's the it's the social dimension of stoicism. Um, I mean, if, even if you think take the ancient Stoics, I mean, one of them is Mark. If, well, let's say Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic. Well, well, he's doing a, a big social job. He's an emperor, 
Epictetus is a teacher. And, uh, and Seneca, uh, who'd been, uh, you know, involved in Neronian politics in a very big way and then got fired. <laughs> um, I mean, when he writes his letter, I mean, he puts his stoicism into letters to a friend. So there's, there's always a social dimension to stoicism. It's not, it's not something you're, I mean, although Marcus Aurelius, he wrote what this word he called to himself. And that mean, I think that may have given him a, 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 a somewhat missing misconception of stoicism as a sort of something to do on your own and uh, just a kind of meditative practice it can do you can use it that way of course um but i think you know stoicism is really a social philosophy uh it's it's intended i mean stoics thought that we all have these these instincts to um to try to uh, to live together in a contented way so I think that what's perhaps missing in a lot of the modern way of stoicism is, is this um, is, is the idea of how we can how we can use stoicism in, in a kind of community way, in a, com a communal way. And I mean, you know, there are all the cliches about today about how we're not, you know, and politicians are not focused on the common good and all that. Well, you know, what what I think is lying behind that is is something about modern 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 materialist culture where you know it's, i don't i don't i'm not about people people going wrong but politicians seeing their role as simply trying to you know satisfy economic economic satisfactions rather than getting into uh, the question of well what really helps people to feel you know fulfilled and contented where because when we then get into issues to do with education well. Yeah, it's interesting because you think of Epicureanism and that definitely had a social element. I mean, historically, you think of the communes and such like that. And um, yeah. that one, I, I think people can see the social element in that philosophy a lot more. Whereas, yeah, you're right. Modern Stoicism is sort of like a self-help. Here's your writing journal. Make your notes every day. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. You know, that, no, nothing wrong with that, of course. I mean, and, and you know, any 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 good uh well philosophy which has a kind of um, psychological foundation as stoicism does have you know it's going to have to be to have, to, have to adapt have to adapt to different situations so i, I don't want to criticize that I'm, I'm simply saying that there's a dimension i think that perhaps some some people may may, may be missing which which stoicism can can um help you to uh, you know, to help if you are thinking in terms of, uh, of social, social norms. Well, I think we should definitely throw a large Stoics party, maybe when all of this is over, uh, a Stoics yeah. ball or something. We can really bring the, the social element back into it. I would love to do that. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks. Classical Wisdom Society members can listen to the entire podcast with Professor Long at classicalwisdom.com. If you would like to learn more about Professor Long's books, including How to Be Free, An Ancient Guide to the Stoic Life, you can purchase them all on amazon.com. <laughs>